summer, the sermon series has been on small books of the Bible. Uh, we've studied Haggai and 2nd and 3rd John and Titus, and today is Obadiah. But if that was a little much for you, we're going to start off with a simpler story. Um, maybe you're familiar with this. The kids in room 207 were misbehaving again. Spitballs stuck to the ceiling, paper planes whizzed through the air. They were the worst behaved class in the whole school. So the text begins in Miss Nelson is missing. And so if you haven't read Obadiah before, or you didn't read it in preparation for today's sermon, which no judgment there, maybe you've read this book at least sometime in your life. So Miss Nelson is Missing is a book, first, about chaos and destruction. And second, it's about rectification and order. The kids of room 207 are so bad that their teacher, Miss Nelson, stops coming to school. Instead, Miss Viola Swamp shows up, and she means business. She loads the kids with homework and warns them that if they misbehave, they'll be sorry. Miss Viola Swamp is the harbinger of order. It follows her, and she leaves it in her wake so that when Miss Nelson returns from wherever she's been, the children are never rude or bad or chaotic again. So like Miss Nelson is missing, Obadiah is a short book. In fact, it is the shortest book in the Old Testament, and it is also, at least according to one source, the least popular book in the entire Bible, including Leviticus. And, and it makes sense on the surface. It's hard to understand. It seems like it could probably be depressing if you understand it. It's a prophecy against Edom. You might have gotten that from the first verse. And it's spoken by the prophet Obadiah, of whom basically we know nothing. And for those of us outside the ancient Near East, which is all of us, Edom might sound like a Dutch cheese. It's not. But despite its brevity and its unpopularity, God's spirit is still active and present in our reading of all the Holy Scriptures. And just as Jesus explained the Old Testament to Caiaphas and his friend, on their journey to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, so can the Holy Spirit open our eyes to the good news of Jesus Christ within this small book. So I'm going to invite you in a, a prayer I like to teach my children, and I taught it to the children at camp. You can follow along with emotions if you like. It's an eyes-open prayer. You can repeat after me. Holy Spirit, open our ears. Help us to hear. Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, help us love you more. Obadiah consists of divine judgment poems against the people of Edom. Those are the folks on the other side of the Dead Sea. You can see Edom here on the map the yellow part on the bottom. The backstory is very important for understanding this book. And everyone who hears this prophecy for the first time would know the backstory intuitively. 
but we might need some help remembering. So here it goes. The Edomites share ancestry with the people of Israel. They're brothers. You're probably going to do really well in this, but I'm going to give you opportunity to fill in the blank. So Abraham and Sarah had one son. Isaac marries Rebecca, and she becomes pregnant with twins who were awfully active in the womb. And when she asks God about the movement of these unborn children, the Lord says, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. So the twins are born. Esau comes out first, and Jacob second, grabbing his heel. Esau, you might remember, is the hairy one. And Jacob is the one with that fantastic lentil soup recipe. And he uses that recipe to ploy the birthright from his brother. The birthright usually given to the eldest brother, Jacob trades for some bowl of this, what must have been superb soup. And then later, and I, I wonder if Rebecca remembered the word she'd received from the Lord. She tries to make this prophecy happen. And she plots with Jacob to trick Isaac, the father, into giving the younger son the blessing reserved for the elder brother. You can take the map down now because we'll be done with the screen tour of it. And Jacob becomes Israel. And Esau becomes Edom. And the sibling rivalry continues to play out in this relationship between these two families and clans and tribes and nations. And in Numbers 20, when Israel is wandering through the wilderness, Edom refuses to allow them to walk through their land. Even when the Israelites say, hey, we'll pay for any water. We are the animal drink, the animals drink. They say no. You think they're a little bitter, maybe? Because much, much later, Edom does get their revenge. When Israel is invaded and conquered by Babylon in 587 BC, the Edomites take advantage by plundering the cities, capturing and even killing refugee Israelites. The book of Amos tells us that the Edomites do not say no when people from Gaza and Tyre deliver the captive Israelites to them. They accept the refugees. And then they, the Bible tells us, pursue them with a sword and cast off all pity. Psalm 137 tells us that on the day Jerusalem fell, the Edomites cry out, Raise it! Raise it down to its foundations! Why do they do this? The book of Obadiah tells us that it's their pride. Because Edom is proud of its success. Despite the lack of birthright and blessing, they've made it. They've climbed to the top of the mountain, literally the mountain, and carved out their own rock fortress by hand. Who can ever reach us up here, they ask. And Edom looks down on Jerusalem the day it's destroyed by Babylon, and they think, finally, finally, 1,400 years later, we are vindicated. Raise it. Raise it down to its foundations. So, Obadiah prophesies to Edom, as you have done, so it will be done to you. But this will be worse. Even when thieves come, Obadiah says, they leave stuff behind. Grape harvesters leave grapes for the poor. They don't get them all. But your enemies, they're going to wipe you out completely. 
And it won't just be your enemies wiping you out. It'll be your friends. Your friends will join in on the action. And everyone who's left in Edom will be the stupid ones. Because God says, I will destroy everyone who is wise. And all you'll have left is an idiocracy. And then they'll die too. And then, says God, you'll be shamed. And to someone in the ancient Near East, shame is the worst thing that can happen to them. And then you'll be forever destroyed. You will be forgotten. And they were. And then God reminds them why, as if they, they don't remember, or we don't remember, but this is why. You acted like an enemy, not a family member. You gloated. You rejoiced. You spoke arrogantly. You plundered, and, and then you stood killing those who tried to escape. And this is what Edom has done. This is where their desire for payback has led them. Did you know the story was this dramatic? It is rather dramatic, I think. And, you know, we don't have tribal things like this that happen in our world, or at least the developed world. We're all nice ladies and gentlemen who go to our jobs or our clubs and who eat dinner with our families with our knife's blade pointed in toward the plate, which demonstrates how we are no longer violent. We don't hold grudges for 1,400 years. We are civilized now. With the rise of the enlightenment and reason, we understand how things work. We understand how to educate a child, how to prevent bullying, how to do a surgery. These things don't happen anymore. There is no chaos. Except there is, and we know it. So just like the kids in room 207, we live dodging spitballs, usually metaphorical ones, but sometimes real for the teachers maybe. I could list examples of chaos around us right now, examples of people or nations living into age-old disputes, but I don't need to. Chaos reigns. It reigns in our newsfeed and in the world and in our homes and even in our hearts. Yes, there are times of peace, right? Just this moment here together now, this is a time of peace. This isn't chaotic for us socially right now. But even in those times, we wonder, when will the other shoe drop? When will the chaos return? And we might become hypervigilant trying to control it. And we know we can't control much of it, so we try to control what we can. We do things like organize the laundry room or sort our kids' Lego collection. We double check our accounting and we Google people we just met. We may, some people do this maybe, we might poison each individual dandelion in our yards because even though the world is chaotic, the weeds will be controlled. We want to control the chaos. But the fact is that sometimes a crayon ends up in the dryer. Your key breaks off in the lock. The Legos get dumped out again onto the dining room floor and then you step on one with bare feet and say something inappropriate in front of the children. People eat right and exercise and don't smoke and still get cancer. Children with good parents who go to good schools still suffer from anxiety and get depressed. Babies die from SIDS. People in good marriages are unfaithful to their spouses. And innocent people are imprisoned while guilty people walk away free. We cannot control the chaos. 
And so it rules us. You know, we, we kind of need someone like Miss Viola Swamp to come in with her ruler and tell us that she means business. We need someone to come in and make the wrong right and to set the chaos straight, to wipe the tears from the eyes of those who weep and to make the sick better. And Obadiah answers our call. He says, he proclaims, the day of the Lord for all nations. Maybe you've heard this phrase, the day of the Lord. Yom Yahweh, that's it in Hebrew. It's very popular in the minor prophets like Joel and Amos. The day of the Lord is the day that God finally defeats the chaotic powers, the evil and death that surround us and rule over us. And this is the day when God pours out the judgment. We hear this in Obadiah. You will drink. You will gulp it down. This isn't a nice, refreshing drink. This is the cup of judgment, the text says. Edom will be punished. God will make justice happen. Edom will receive her just desserts, and they will not be delicious. And not just Edom, all nations. Because Edom represents all nations, all humanity, all human pride, all of the instances we do it ourselves and climb to the top of the mountain and look down. This is key, the idea that Edom represents humanity, and it shows up actually in the poetry in the word Edom itself. So you see the Hebrew here. You read Hebrew from right to left, and the top is Edom. You see the, the consonants are the big letter. That's Edom. Edom is on the top. And on the bottom is the word for Adam, when God makes people, he, and he names the man Adam, Adam. You can see that the consonants are the same, aleph, dalet, mem. And this, this kind of similarity is very important in Hebrew poetry. So we can see how, poetically, Edom does represent all people, all nations. We are all Edom. Maybe we haven't run through refugees with a sword, but we're prideful. This is part of the human condition, the sinful human condition. We like to think we've made it ourselves. And even if we don't participate in the violence or the chaos, we're safe. We like to believe we're safe from it and we're in control. We like to think we can control the chaos ourselves, but we can't. And that's why all of us need the day of the Lord. Because first, the day of the Lord is judgment. Judgment of the pride of all nations and all people. This is justice, and it is God's justice. And I can't tell you exactly what it looks like, but it's when God will make all the wrong right and all the evil will be punished and done away with. First part, a day of the Lord. The second part is the homecoming. And in our text, a remnant of people return to Mount Zion. Sometimes, if you have a different translation, you might have noticed that it was translated Jerusalem. But in, in Hebrew, it is Mount Zion. But this is the good news, to return to the place where God is. And this Jerusalem that the people return to, the Mount Zion, is the same Jerusalem that Jesus' friend John sees in Revelation 21. This is from the New Living Translation. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea, the sea means chaos. 
The sea was also gone, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. The new heaven and the new earth. This is not a land established by socio-political forces. This is a new Jerusalem that represents the dwelling place of the Lord. On the day of the Lord, the Lord shows that he is the only God the only living, the only king, the only ruler of the world. And so God's rule in Obadiah flows out of Jerusalem to include the land around Israel, to include Philistia, Galatia, Samaria, Gilead, Phoenicia. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. I'm just guessing based on the time frame he was writing, Obadiah didn't travel too much. All the nations are the ones that surround Israel. But God's rule flows into them too. And from other texts in the Bible, we may add beyond this. If Obadiah had known about the continents, maybe he would have included them. He would have said it flows to Africa and Antarctica, to Asia, Australia, Europe, North America, South America. God's rule. The earth is the Lord's. And those who have been exiled will return. From an Old Testament perspective, we think, oh, those who were exiled from Jerusalem. But from a New Testament perspective, we learn that we are all exiled from God because of our sin. We are all exiles. But Jesus makes a way to return. Jesus makes a way for us to approach God, to be vice regents, to rule with Christ. Not to be citizens of the United States or Canada or Kenya or China, but to be citizens of God's kingdom. And this is our true home home where God is king, the home where God invites us with him to rule. Note that it does say the exiles will rule with, with king, the king of God, God. And we see here God is reordering. God is taking the chaos and reshaping it into something true and good and beautiful and something we cannot do by ourselves. This order also is demonstrated by the Hebrew poetry itself. As God, the first half of the book, can you show that first slide, please, Evan? The next one. The first half of the book of Obadiah, we might not have it. If you, if you were to look at the Hebrew, all the letters are different for each line for the first half. In the second half, the letters start to have some kind of poetic and, and sound consonants. So the same letters will be repeated, oh, two and three lines. This might sound silly to us, like a kind of like a children's book or something, but in Hebrew poetry, this is a very, ah, here we go. So here we have the first six verses, and you can see it's different letters. Occasionally the aleph is, is first, but it's different letters. There's not a pattern. And on the next slide, the second half of the book, even if you start at the bottom, you can see that it's starting with the same letter. So it start. do you see that? So it's starting to show order. Even his very poetry, the prophet Obadiah, is demonstrating order itself. The day of the Lord is a poem. It is an ordered poem. From chaos to order. There have been several days of the Lord throughout biblical history. The first day was when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and God judged their oppressors by drowning them in the sea, the chaos. 
But the biggest day of the Lord was three days. It was the day when Jesus, God himself, died in order to defeat sin, death, evil, and chaos. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, announcing that rather than being defeated, he was victorious over these powers. And so we anticipate together the final day of the Lord, the day that Jesus will return and invite us home to the new heavens and the new earth. And so now we live in this sort of tension, this in-between time between when Jesus first defeated the powers on the cross and the time when the kingdom will be finished, will be consummated. Sometimes we call this the already but not yet of the kingdom. But because of the presence of the spirit and the work of Jesus, the kingdom is already present among us, the body of Christ, the church. And the day of this day of the Lord, this future coming day, is a day Christians hope for. So how do we live? How do we respond to the gospel in the book of Obadiah? First, we remember that it's not us who can order the world and who can create true justice. It's only God. To think that any political or social ideology will create true justice is idolatry. Only God will bring true justice. Only God establishes God's kingdom. Human kingdoms all fail. Human kingdoms are all judged. However, even though God, only God brings true justice, we are still called to be people who show justice, who love mercy, who walk humbly with God. We are called to be people who are holy, this remnant, the ones who are called back to Mount Zion. As an act, we are called to this because we are responding to the past and future saving acts of Jesus Christ. And so we live into the identity of people who are already citizens of God's holy kingdom and who will one day rule under King Jesus. People who care for the poor and the oppressed, this is all over scripture. People who are careful about what they say, who keep their word, who don't speak falsehood, who listen. People who love one another deeply and who forgive as we have been forgiven. People who walk in step with the spirit. People who live despite the chaos surrounding us in the deep hope of Christ's future coming and in the present reality of his reign over our lives. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, day of the Lord. Amen. As we respond together, I'm going to invite us to join in a prayer of confession. It's found in your hymnal on number 908.